You're listening to sermons from Southbridge Fellowship in Raleigh, North Carolina. We pray that today's message helps you to connect to Jesus for life change. Let me do a little quick prayer for us, just an encounter with Jesus as we walk into a a familiar story in Matthew chapter 2. Last week, Pastor Dave started our sermon series for Christmas, Christmas on Display, and he talked about God's love on display during Christmas in Romans chapter 5. We're chronologically going backwards, closer and closer to the birth of Jesus. And on Christmas Eve, which I invite you to invite your friends, there's four services, I'll be preaching from John chapter 1, not a familiar passage for Christmas, but the pre-existent Christ. And so we will go backwards. And today we're in Matthew chapter 2. Jesus is about two years old in our passage, and we're going to talk about hope on display. So if you need a word of hope, today's your day. Let me pray. Father, I pray the song we just sang, that we've witnessed you do great things, and we believe you're going to do more. I pray you do more today. I pray for your presence. I pray for an encounter with you. I pray that lives would be changed. I pray that eternity would be changed. I pray you'd pull back the veil on things that are hidden that don't need to be hidden anymore. I pray for you to physically save lives and to spiritually save souls. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, I think that um, all of us know what it is to live in a stressful world. I mean, just globally, uh, there's multiple wars taking place. There's economic stress. There are different things going on. And you probably have stress in your own life. Those of you who don't know, maybe you're new to the church, I've got four kids. Enough said, right? Sort of stress. Uh, I'm pretty confident that they believe that the sole purpose of my and my wife's life is to be an Uber driver or a chef, personal consultant, clothing provider, various things for their existence so they can live their best life every day. And so, parents, they can identify with that. You know what it's like. But with four of them and uh, not driving, they expect us to also have logistical, magical skills of getting them to the places they need to go. Last weekend, I had two daughters with soccer tournaments, both kind of out of town, but not so much out of town that we would go and stay at these places. Goldsboro, about an hour and a half. Anybody here from Goldsboro? Anybody here? No? Those of you, if you're online, congratulations. The grass is greener in Raleigh and the tea is sweeter, and we'd love to have you in the promised land. Um, uh, so anybody from Fuquay? I had a daughter that was in Fuquay, the Quay. Anybody got some Quay people here? All right. Knew you'd come to the second service, no first service. I wanted to get up that early to make that drive, but we're glad you're here. And so we had to drive them to these spots, and then we had a gymnastics going on, and oh, Christmas party, and various other things that are happening. And my wife handles our social calendar. So if you ever come up to me and say, hey, we should do something together, and I'll be like, that sounds great, but I'm not going to write it down. you got to talk to her, all right? And she put the calendar together, and I think we actually have a, a, a live picture of what that was like. That, this is her with the logistics. Yep, there it is, getting everybody together. Stress will make you look a little bit different, and so maybe that's me, I don't know. The way the plan went, I was going to be driving to Goldsboro three days in a row, and the first day was fine. My car gets about 10 miles to the gallon, though, so that's not ideal. Second day, it was going well, and then after the soccer game on that Saturday, I had to go to the bathroom so bad I could feel it in my teeth. Have you ever had that? <laughs> and I keep thinking, next step, maybe there'll be a rest area, because those are faster. Maybe, nope. And so then I see a sign that says there's a gas station. I don't know what the rules are in North Carolina for you to be allowed to say there's a gas station at your exit, but when I got off the exit, it was a farm to the right and a farm to the left, nothing in sight. I think as long as a gas station is within like 15-mile radius, you're allowed to say that? So I followed the arrow, went. I'll never forget the location because of the name of the road. Lizard Lick Road. Have you been there? You guys have been there. This has happened to you too. (laughs) There's two things at that intersection. A Dollar General, which that's never a good sign, FYI. And a gas station. But I don't need gas, and I don't need anything for $5 because that's what the dollar store is now. I go inside the gas station, out of order. The men's and women's, really? All right, I'll go over to the Dollar General. Out of order, no, no. There's a conspiracy against me, I'm confident. Uh, I think the Bible says to dust your feet off from places like this or something like that, I don't know. I wanted to curse it, I didn't call down cursings from it. Uh, Probably a moment of the Holy Spirit, I figured out a way to go and my teeth could feel better, but it was not there. And I determined in my heart, I never want to be here again. However, that was day two of three days. After church last Sunday, drive my daughter to Goldsboro for the third day. And she plays, and she's going to be riding home with a teammate. And so 
I'm cruising home on my own. Some of you might remember, I did a sermon. I don't expect you to remember all these, but I got a lot of response from people on this one. About six months or a year ago, and I talked about there's two types of people in the world when it comes to your gas tank. Yep, some of you are nodding. I see spouses looking at each other. Yes. And my wife lived on the dark side. She would always be riding eternally on E in her car. And I was the kind of person, like, if it hits half tank, we're filling it back up. Get the good gas in there. Don't run it bad. Well, a bunch of you, after that sermon, sent me pictures of your gas gauges and articles and explanations and text messages about how far you can go after E. We're kind of growing together as a church. And I moved to the dark side. (laughs) And I became an E driver. And I was driving home on E. However, love our soccer team and all the parents. A bunch of them are left lane cruisers. The people who drive in the left lane right at the speed limit and their argument is, I'm going the speed limit, get out of the way. But anyway, right? Um, I did not um, want to wait for them to get on the road. I hopped on the road ahead of them, went as fast as I could. I was passing someone. It was already on E on the way there. And I felt the car go, and look at the guy next to me like, I'm not really going to pass you. Hazard lights merge because it's happening. It's the beginning of the end. I ran out of gas, not at the exit I was at the day before. I call my wife. We have a minor disagreement. I won't get into the details of that because I do like being married to her and that going smoothly as possible. And so we didn't agree on how to handle the situation. I hung up before we said goodbye. So it was my fault. It was my pride that was not allowing me to let her plan was, well, all the soccer people are coming up behind you, so let's just text the whole team. Oh, utter humiliation? No, thank you. I'll walk. So I walk. I get to the exit again. There's seemingly nothing. I pulled out my GPS. It said nearest gas station, 23 miles. No, it can't be right. 50-50, I go left. Maybe a good Samaritan, maybe a serial killer, a guy pulls up to me. Where are you headed? I'm close. I lied. Forgive me, it was to save my life. I don't remember his name. Jeffrey Balmer or Ned Bundy. I can't remember. It was a serial killer, good Samaritan, didn't want to find out, so I lied to him. Keep walking, and then I see the Dollar General. Back to Lizard Lick Road from a different angle. Uh huh. Good thing I didn't have to go to the bathroom. And they did sell gas. And the Dollar General had a can for me to buy. And I walked back. Stress is pressure or problems and your response to them in life. There are more technical definitions than that, but it's pressure and problems. Each of you, when you came in today, had a three-by-five card on your seat. As we get started in this message, I want you to write down what is the one pressure or problem that you would eliminate from your life if you could? Or what is the most stressful thing in your life? And so I'll give you a moment and for different people to be different things. Maybe it's a global thing. It's the things happening in the economy. Maybe it's a personal thing. It's a, you wanted this relationship or it's a relational thing or it's paying a bill or it's some health issue or it could be lots of things. This year, at this time of year, things can be stressful because of family dynamics and maybe you'd remove not a family member, hopefully, but a dynamic that's there. I don't know what you'd write down, but write it down. I'm not going to manipulate you. I'm not going to ask you to turn these in. These, this is for you as we walk through this message. And because what we're going to see as we talk about God's hope on display is that the pressure and problems, stress, in our lives in this stress-filled world oftentimes reveal our hope. It's like the pressure and the problems squeeze us And whatever the hope is that's inside comes out. And there's good hope and there's bad hope. There's actually some dangerous hope that we're going to see in our passage. It's a pretty familiar passage in Matthew chapter 2, Lord willing. We'll go through at least the first 12 verses today. Uh, Jesus is about two years old, and so Mary has her own personal pressure that's happened in her life already. She's about 16 years old. She finds out she's pregnant. Imagine telling your fiancé this, I'm pregnant, but I'm still a virgin. (laughs) We don't have this conversation. I can imagine it didn't go, well, let me go take a nap and see if God speaks to me in a dream. I bet that's not what was said. That's kind of how we tell the Christmas story. We romanticize it. And he saw a dream and he still took her as his wife. Um, this conversation, I'm pregnant, but, 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 it's God's baby. Oh, okay. 
probably some stress there. Oh, and, and she's got a relative named Elizabeth who, at the very beginning of Matthew, she's pregnant. They were barren their whole lives, and now that she's pregnant and her husband doesn't say a word about it, nice, if you know the story, you know what I mean. And then Mary goes and stays with her for a few months and comes back, and now she's showing, and there's some personal pressure. There's political pressure. Herod's the king, but he actually rules under a guy named Caesar, Augustus, who claimed to be the son of God, that his deity was shown by the comet star that flew above. He's an egomaniac. Herod's not even fully Jewish. He's the king of the Jews. There's political pressure. Lots of people don't want the political leaders who are in charge to be in charge of them. The land is occupied by Romans. It's Jewish land. The Jews, when they read the Old Testament, when you read the Old Testament, from our perspective, some things can become clear, but try and imagine there's no New Testament, and you read things like this. The Messiah is going to be a deliverer. He's the anointed one. He's going to come, and He's going to judge, and He's going to set His people free. Also, passages like Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, if you want to look them up on your own, He's a suffering servant. He'll be beaten and murdered. How can these things both be true? And A lot of the Jews at this time, not all, because it's like if you ask me, what do Christians believe? I'm like, they believe Jesus is the only way, or they're not really Christians. Other than that, there's a lot of disagreement, right? So, many Jews, not all, would read the Old Testament, and the way that they read the Old Testament is there would be one coming of the Messiah. That's why some Jews today have a hard time with the idea that Jesus is the because he Well, he didn't come and judge, and Jews are still being persecuted, and so did he deliver? Well, he wasn't the political deliverer you were looking for. And the way that some people explain it is, when you read the Old Testament, it's like looking at a mountain from a far-off distance. And I know we've got students that go to App State, some of you go to the mountains, and so try to imagine, have you ever seen a mountain that looks huge from a distance? And as you get closer, you start to realize there's actually two mountains. And as you change perspective on those two mountains, you start to see there's a gap in between them. And that's what we see when we read the Bible, is that a lot of people for a long time thought there'd be, the Messiah would come, there'd be one coming, but now it becomes clear there's actually two comings, and where we are is between the times, where some of these prophecies have been already fulfilled, some not yet. And we live in the already and not yet as followers of Christ. We read the New Testament. You've been raised with Christ, already true, not yet fully realized. Kind of like this morning when I left my house. And this is Christmas season, and it's like 70 degrees outside. I'm from Michigan. There's supposed to be like nine feet of snow out here. It's already true that it's Christmas season, not yet fully realized. You've already been saved if you've placed your faith in Christ. You're not yet fully saved. You've already been given freedom from sin, but not yet removed all sin from your life, or you're in this world where sin rules and reigns. See, Matthew's a lot about the kingdom of God. Kingdom means it's where God rules and reigns, and He may rule and reign in your life, but not the entire world. So, it's already true, not yet fully realized. So, the coming of Jesus, as much as we romanticize it, is actually introducing more tension. There's already the personal problems, the political problems, all these issues, and now here Jesus comes and He presents a problem. What are you going to do with me? Especially if I'm not everything that you expected. Especially if following me means a lot of other relational problems. It means you identify with a different world. And what we see in this passage is three different responses to Jesus in Matthew chapter 2. Each one reveals a different kind of hope. Matthew 2, I'm going to read verses 1 through 12, then we'll come back and walk back through it. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, magi from the east came to Jerusalem, and they asked... Where is the one, and this is key, not just the one who's king of the Jews, that could be Herod. Where's the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. That's a problem too. Verse 3, when King Herod heard this, this is the first response, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. So everybody in Jerusalem for various different reasons were disturbed with Herod. Verse 4, 
The whole city's in an uproar. And when he called together all the people's chief priests, there was a chief priest in the Old Testament. Now they've made it multiple people on their own doing. And teachers of the law. These are not lawyers like I see one of my friends, one of our elders here, J.D. Hensterling, Florida State alum. Love you. Or loves the Florida State Seminoles. Sorry what happened to you. Um, not that kind of lawyer. Not a business lawyer. Not a defendant. Not a prosecutor. The law that's being referred to is the law of Moses, the Old Testament. These are experts in the Bible. That's what they do all day, study the Bible. And what Herod wants to know is the location. It's not Jerusalem. And many of us, we romanticize the story and we act like these magi followed this star from wherever they were in the east, maybe Persia, maybe Babylon, maybe a thousand miles, maybe 500, all the way to Jerusalem. No, the star's gone. They saw a star, then in their own reasoning thought, it's going to be born king of the Jews, let's go to the main Jewish place, Jerusalem. They're in the wrong location. Bethlehem's about five miles away. He asked where, verse 5, in Bethlehem. That's an easy question for them. They replied, and then we see their response. For this is what the prophet has written. This is Micah 5, 2 in the Old Testament. Here it is, verse 6. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people. Then Herod, so a separate meeting. The Magi don't hear this from the teachers of the law. Then Herod brings the news to them, called the Magi secretly, closed door meeting, found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. That's relevant for the next passage, which we won't read today, where Herod kills all the young boys to and under in Bethlehem. So Jesus is maybe two years old here. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go, and I don't know why he doesn't say, let's all go together. I'll go with you. But he says, go and search carefully for the child." As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. <laughs> not cap, liar, whatever you want to say. Not, he does not really want to worship, we find out, because he's trying to kill him. After they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had, so the star reappears, they had seen, when it rose, went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. Hmm. On coming to the house, so it's a house, it's not out there with a bunch of animals and in with no room, they saw a child with his mother, a child, not a baby, with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and they worshipped him. What song did they sing? Doesn't say, there's no song. Worship's about the heart. They probably prostrated not just their physical bodies, but their hearts before him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh and having been warned in a dream, so God continued to lead them, but not by a star this time, now by a dream. In a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. What you see with each one of these people, groups of people, Herod, the Magi, these teachers of the law, is that as this problem of what are you going to do with Jesus comes and this new pressure enters into their lives, their hope is revealed. One of the ways I've trimmed this message down from the first service, and I apologize to the tech team, is we're going to flip the last point to now being the next point. <laughs> that's, a, that's a heads up for you guys in case you're not paying attention. <laughs> hope is essential. Hope is powerful. And what we're going to see is there's a difference between a God-given hope and a lot of other kinds of hope. And if we're going to have the kind of hope that God's desiring for you as a follower of Christ this Christmas as he puts his son Jesus on display through your life, then you must have a heart filled with a God-given hope. Do you have that? What kind of hope do you have? Do you have any hope? If we're going to have the kind of hope that that we know that he wants for us, that, that Peter writes to a, a church that's being persecuted in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, that we should always be ready to give an answer. And a lot of times this passage is used about how to defend the faith. Well, it's actually when people are already inquiring about our faith, we're explaining our, your personal hope. Always be ready to give an answer for the hope that you have. Who's asking about your hope? If you have a heart, that's overflowing with a God-given hope in a world that's filled with stress. And then stress comes into your life and you have such an otherworldly kind of hope, people are going to want to know about that. 
I don't know what you wrote down on your card. There's no way I could possibly know. I don't even know everybody's name. I certainly don't know all the folks that are watching online, some from other countries. But I am confident of this. What you wrote on that 3 by 5 card, God is using to drive you closer to Him and will reveal your hope. And without hope, everything's dangerous. I don't know who the first person to say it was, but it's been said that we can live weeks without food. <laughs> Depends on how much you ate for Thanksgiving, how many weeks. You can live days without water, minutes without oxygen. I think it's eight minutes, only seconds without hope. What kind of hope do you have? Hope is powerful. Even you see it in the stories, even of non-believers. One of the things that's all over the news right now is the invasion that Hamas did to Israel, um, killed 1,200 people, kidnapped 240 people. I think it was last Friday, uh, several of those hostages were released after being held captive against their will for 55-0 days. I don't know if you've read any of their stories. Some of them have spoken publicly. One woman has. She's 78 years old. Rudy Munder, you can Google that later if you want to see her full story, but try and imagine you're 78 years old, terrorists come into your house, throw a blanket over your head, put you on a car, drive you to an undisclosed location in Gaza, then you find out your son's been killed by one of the other terrorists as a terrorist tells you that. And you're being held for 50 days. They've done awful things to children, to other grandmothers, but she said that she had hope. Now, her reason for having hope is highly questionable to me because she said a leader of Hamas came to her and said, you're safe here. <laughs> oh, thanks. From the guy who just planned all of that. Hmm. But she did live. If you read her story, she said it was hope that helped get her through that. You read the diary of Anne Frank, hope that the future would be better. Nelson Mandela, given a life sentence to prison because he was trying to argue for racial equality. He, when he was on trial, the apartheid party in South Africa asked him, are you basically fighting for blacks to take over whites? And he says, I'm, not, I'm fighting against white dominance and black dominance. I want equality. And he was sentenced to life in prison. He served 27 years before he was released and then became the first black president. It was hope that things could get better based on what? Mm, I don't know. I don't think he had a good object, but it was hope. Hope was still powerful even when it wasn't the biblical hope. Fighting for racial equality in our country, Martin Luther King Jr., he said this, we must accept finite disappointment but never lose infinite hope. He was a follower. Jesus. Charles Spurgeon, Baptist preacher, says it like this, hope itself is like a star, not to be seen in the sunshine of prosperity and only to be discovered in the night of adversity. And here, we romanticize this story sometimes, but it is an incredibly tense situation. And the first kind of hope that we see, we'll see the, the biblical hope, because I had to cut some stuff last service, and what I don't want to cut is the good news. And so we're going to put that at the beginning. And we're going to call it an enthusiastic hope. It's biblical hope, real hope, true hope. There's lots of things I could call it, but I'm calling it enthusiastic hope here because it drove these men to travel. I don't want to ever be the preacher that's always overstating numbers. We don't know exactly who these wise men or magi are. It depends on your translation on what they're called. I'm reading the NIV, calls them magi. Some of you, your Bibles might say wise men. They're not kings. <laughs> so we, three kings, wrong. <laughs> If they're Persian priests, like some people think, they've traveled a thousand miles. I think they're probably Babylonian. Many of you were part of our church in the fall. We were studying the book of Daniel. I conveniently got sick right before all the hard passages, so thank you, pastoral staff, for that. Daniel chapter 9 talks about the anointed one and the 77s. The 77s is a time frame before the Messiah will come, and it appears these men knew some of these texts. And there's a prophecy from a false prophet 
But God speaks through, he speaks through a donkey in the Old Testament. His name's Balaam, Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. They talk about when the Messiah comes, there's going to be a star. It seems they knew that, but they didn't know the location. They didn't know Micah 5 too. So they knew some Bible. They were watching for the signs of the times. And then it made sense to them, well, if he's a king of the Jews, then let's go to where the Jews are, Jerusalem. And so they travel. And if you remember Daniel, if you're a wise man like Daniel was, a counselor to the king, you, had, you were in the top 1% economically. You had all the creature comforts you could imagine. And these guys that aren't even Jewish travel, I think, probably about 500 miles if they're Babylonian. That's an enthusiastic hope. And did you see that their joy that they experienced was before they actually saw Jesus? See, there's a difference between hope and faith. You can have faith of things in the past. You don't have hope for the past. Hope is always future. You can have faith in the past. You can have faith in the present. Hopefully you do. You can have faith of the future, the future faith of what God's going to do. He's going to continue to be who He is. He's going to continue to keep His promises, the future faith. But hope is always future Interesting then, when you read 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and it says there's these three eternal things. These three remain. Prophecies will cease, tongues will cease, but faith, hope, and love. These, these are eternal. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is the famous chapter on what love is, and one of the characteristics of true love, biblical love, is that love always hopes. So when you love someone, you're always thinking of them having a better future than whatever they currently have right now. You want what's best for them. See, a biblical hope is different. And it's why these men move to action that would require taking risk, we call faith. That would mean leaving comfort. That would lead to a life of adventure. That ultimately would lead to, verse 10, an overflowing joy. The English Standard Version describes verse 10, I think, better than the NIV. It says, when they saw the, not the child, the star. This is just anticipation for what's going to happen, the child. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Four words to describe one emotion. Have you ever had that much joy? Mm. Biblical hope can lead to that. Here's how biblical hope is different than all the other hopes. Most of you, even when I say the word, you think of a wish. I hope that it stops raining and the sun comes out after the service. I hope that my team still gets into the college football playoff. I hope that I get a raise. I hope it's a December to remember. Is Alexa still doing that commercial? Are they not allowed now? They don't have an electric car yet? It's not allowed? Okay. I don't know. I don't know. I'm keeping up with it. I can't even keep up. I hope that I'll get married. I hope that we have a baby. I hope those are wishes. Not wrong, not bad, but there's nothing, like you can't manifest that into existence. There's nothing that promises it's going to be true. But biblical hope is confident expectation because you already know what's true. You maybe have not yet experienced it, part of living in the tension. Already not yet. Say, but hope is eternal, and, and one day there's going to be no sin, and there's going to be no crying. How can we continue to have hope while we're in heaven? Because you're going to be with an infinite God. You don't think you're always going to be learning more, having greater joy, growing? Hmm. Hope. Biblical hope is an amazing, it's an otherworldly kind of hope. That's why people would ask about it. That's why you can have it. Even in the, Their lives are in danger. Herod's about to go kill a bunch of babies to make sure that he can maintain his control. These guys aren't fools. They know. There's a reason the whole city was disturbed, but they've got this different kind of hope. So what is biblical hope? And as you're asking yourself whether you have this kind of hope, I don't want you to be thinking, have I been baptized? Do I believe these facts? What do you think? Do you have this kind of hope? The Bible talks about biblical hope as a living hope. It's dynamic through all kinds of different circumstances. First Peter chapter 1, verse 3. I think we have that verse. and can pop up on the screen. Peter writing to persecute, persecuted believer. Like, we're living in a time right now, Christians, where we might be marginalized. We might be thought of as foolish for some of the things that we believe. But 
if you were being persecuted, would you still have hope? And I just think, think about the situation in Israel. I remember when I got a phone call, I was out of soccer field October 7th, and a friend from church who was in the first service called me up and said, you've probably seen on the news. I was like, I don't watch the news at all. I'm barely awake. I'm out here with the kids. I had to drive people to Goldsboro someday soon. So anyway, <clears throat> he said, uh, yeah, there's a war in Israel. I said, a new one? Because this gentleman traveled with me to Israel before. Seems there's always a dynamic going on. And it was when the invasion of Hamas had taken place. And, and I thought, all right, in the next couple of days, I'm going to do a YouTube video, help equip our church and other believers that want to see it. What should our stance be with Israel? And then as I watched the news for a couple of days, I was like, no, I don't need to do that. Like, even non-Christians are not going to take the side of Hamas in this. I mean, they were raping grandparents and killing babies. And, and then after I had a surgery, I turned the news on. I was like, what? This is this camp? Seriously? How quickly things flipped. How quickly things could flip on us as Christians. How many of you would still come here if you were being persecuted for being a follower of Jesus? Would you gather with other believers? How many of you would still have hope in Jesus? People don't come to church when it rains, let's be fair. So y'all are here and it's raining. What about if it was raining down accusations and maybe even a threat to your life? There's an enthusiastic hope because it's the anchor to our souls. Hebrews chapter 6, you read verses 17 through 19, and Hebrews is addressing a group of people that are tempted to drift away from the faith. And, and the author, we don't know, maybe it was Peter, maybe it was Luke, the author of Hebrews says this, because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs. We're the heirs. We've already been given an inheritance. We've not yet. We still got to pay your electric bill, and you can't use spiritual inheritance for it. Not yet fully experienced it. The heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath, a promise. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who fled, that's interesting, dive into that in your own study, but it's those who've taken refuge in God, to take hold of the hope how do you hold on to hope? Set before us that we may be greatly encouraged. I hope this is encouraging to you. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul. Mm, there's an unmovableness to this hope. Not only is it eternal, not only is it living, but it's unmovable. And you think about what an anchor is like. I saw a viral video this week where there were two fishermen on a lake out in Minneapolis, I think it was. Do we have the video there? I think we do. And, and somebody or called somewhere. the police, and the police, two police officers showed up, and look at what they did. Do you see? A person doesn't just go climbing out onto the ice. He's anchored to what's solid there. Because two guys had fallen into the ice. The sheriff said that when he arrived, they were already experiencing hypothermia. They were not speaking rationally. And so you don't just send your deputy out. Hey, why don't you see if you can make it out? If you crawl and don't walk, it'll disperse your weight. If I'm the deputy, I'm like, <laughs> okay. But if you tie me to the anchor, then even if I fall in, there's an unmovable peace. That's what hope serves like to our souls. Pastor Dave preached from Romans chapter 5 last week. Romans chapter 5 and verse 5 in the New Living Translation says that hope does not disappoint. And you'd be like, whoa, I hoped that so-and-so wouldn't die and they died. I hoped. No, that's a wish. You don't have a promise for that. Biblical enthusiastic hope is based on evidence of what God has done, unchangeableness of his character, and that he cannot lie. He's kept every promise, some already, some not yet. So the ones you haven't experienced, you hope. Those things, do you have that kind of hope, a living hope, an anchored hope, an unchangeable hope, a hope that does not disappoint? That's the kind of hope that other people ask about. That's the kind of hope that leads to, verse 10, overflowing joy. And then in verse 11, you see hope realized, which is worship. And then there's another kind of hope. We saw it with Herod. It's an empty hope. This is what the majority of the world experiences, empty hope. There's something they're hoping in, but it's a temporary thing. And here's the truth to get. When the object of your hope is momentary, the outcome of your hope will be empty. Let me say it again. Let's say it with different words. When... The object, the thing you're hoping in, is temporary, momentary. The result, outcome of that, will be empty. 
And so with Herod, that's exactly what happens. You see, in this passage, we see it. In history, we see it. Remember, go back up to verse 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, okay, so who is King Herod? Just so you know, King Herod was not born Jewish. He's an Edomite from the line of Esau, not from the line of Jacob. You see the genealogy at the beginning of Matthew? Not from the line of David, like Jesus. He's born from Esau, an Edomite. But he's the king of the Jews. And then there's these guys, wise men, magi. We don't know how many there are. Many of us say three because there's three gifts. And some of you traveled with me to Israel. We went to Bethlehem. Some of you bought expensive nativity sets. I am sorry. I'm about to mess it up for you. There might have been 20 of these guys. If you're watching from home today. Alexa, order 17 figurines of magi. Send invoice to Pastor John at sfchurch.com. Or they had a huge entourage because they come in and it says here, and asked, verse 2, the tense of that in the Greek text is originally written in Greek, is that they continuously were asking this question. So there's a group of people well-dressed, not from around there, and they're coming in and everybody, Jews hate Herod because he's the king of the Jews. He's not even Jewish. (laughs) And they're asking this question, where's the one born king of the Jews. We saw his star. Ancients believed that the sighting of a star was the sign that an emperor was going to fall. Herod was not all bad. There was a time, there's heavy taxation, but when economic hard times came, he gave some of the taxes back. He sent stimulus checks out, tried to buy their love. What are you guys laughing about? Do you remember? Did you read that too this week? Um. But we'll see in the next passage, he lies and says, I'll go worship him too. And he, he's such a bad leader that he's leading the Jewish people, and he doesn't know this basic prophecy of where the Messiah would be. He doesn't even know the Bible, which guides the lives of these Jewish people. He doesn't care about them. He cares about himself. And he'll do anything to hang on to what he hopes in, control, power. We see it here when he kills all these babies. They're two and under. We see it throughout his life. He's crafty. He'll do what he needs to do to get this power. He marries a Jewish woman. Her name's Miriam. She's got a brother. He becomes high priest. We see how paranoid he is to hang on to control because he kills her brother. <laughs> I wonder what the next family gathering was like in that. Miriam, where's your brother? I don't know. Why don't you ask my husband? Because he had him drowned. However, Most people didn't know that because he held an elaborate funeral for him and wept at the funeral. He's your prototypical politician. And he gets more and more paranoid. He ends up killing Miriam. He kills two of his sons because he thinks his power is being threatened. And here he's disturbed clearly because his power is threatened. There's been a star. You're looking for not me, the one born king of the Jews. And he'll do anything to hang on to it and... What happens eventually in Herod's life? Moments before he dies, he had his soldiers go and arrest all of the most distinguished citizens in Jerusalem. And the command was, when I breathe my last breath, execute them so no one celebrates at my death. He knew his hope was empty. Some of us hope in money. Money's not a bad thing. See, the Bible says it's the root of all. It does not say it's the root of all, all kinds of evil, but it's actually the people. The problem is just a thing you transact with. Some of you want to control your kids. Well, have you noticed that that's actually controlling you? Because the reality is when control is your hope, false God. The things that we want to control actually control us. Maybe it's your image. You ever notice then? If your image is what you're trying to control, then what everybody else thinks. So now everybody else has control over you. If it's your kids, I just don't want them to make mistakes I've made and I want them to have a better opportunity. You could have good intentions, but all of a sudden how they're doing in life is influencing your joy, controlling you, your marriage. Here's the problem. When you make these temporary things to try and fill an eternal void, because that's what we're trying to do with our hope. The Bible says we all have, even if you're a professed atheist, you have an eternal longing in your soul. Ecclesiastes 3.11. And when you try to put the weight of eternity on something that's temporary, it can't support the weight. 
Marriage is not eternal. If you're mad about that, email Jesus. He's the one who says it. We won't be married in heaven. But marriage is a good thing. Marriage is designed, Ephesians chapter 5, to reveal Jesus. It's not to be Jesus in your life. So you can take a good thing, and if you make it the ultimate thing, it cannot support that weight. Another Minnesota illustration. I saw there was a mall that the roof caved the roof, 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 it depends on where you're at. The roof caved in because it had too much snow on it, and the Applebee's was actually crushed. And city officials said, please don't come to the Applebee's. And I thought to myself, is Applebee's so popular that people would still come? I've got to have my mozzarella sticks. What is it that they, at any rate, couldn't support the weight? Just mo- they get a lot of snow there, but they got more than they could handle. Marriage is good. Kids are good. Money's not bad. But if you put eternal hope in that, you will be empty. How many of you here are college football fans? I've teased my friend that's an FSU fan a little bit. What, any of the teams. You guys are Do you remember at the beginning of the college football season when everybody was a Colorado Buffalo fan? Remember that? Coach Prime was there, Deion Sanders, an FSU grad, by the way. Some have argued the greatest cornerback of all time. Did you know that he's the only professional athlete to appear both in a Super Bowl and a World Series? Sorry, Michael Jordan. Nabo Jackson. Deion Sanders. And he said at the peak of his career, he was so empty he wanted to die. I'll read you in his own words the way he described it. He says this in 1997. I had the best season of my career. Everything I touched turned to gold. He had just bought a Lamborghini for $275,000, but he knew that wasn't going to do it. He said, but inside, I was broken and totally defeated. I remember sitting at the back of the practice field one afternoon, away from everybody, and tears were running down my face. I was saying to myself, this is so meaningless. He was quoting the book of Ecclesiastes. He didn't even know it. I'm so unhappy. We're winning every week. I'm playing great, but I'm not happy. I tried everything. Parties, women, buying expensive jewelry and gadgets, and nothing helped. There was no peace. I had everything the world has to offer, but no peace, no joy, just emptiness. He said, there I was, driving 70 miles an hour down the highway, just looking for a place to end it all. Finally, I yanked the wheel to one side and pulled my car off the road. It skidded to a stop and loose gravel, sending up a cloud of dust. I hesitated for no more than a second or two. I built up the nerve, then hit the accelerator to the floor and drove over the edge of the cliff. Attempted suicide, 1997. When you realize that what you're hoping in is just a wish, See, what happens with empty hope is one of two things. Either you get to the spot where you realize, I'm never going to be able to obtain it. A job goal, financial goal, relationship goal, having kids, whatever it is. So you lose all hope. Or you get it and realize it didn't deliver the promises I had associated with it. So what many of us do in that case is we keep shifting to other temporary hopes, but eventually it caves in. And it all feels meaningless. That's dangerous. Statistically, the CDC says in the last 20 years that suicides have increased by 36% in 20 years. Think about that. Do you know it's the number two leading cause of death for kids 10 to 14? It's in the top 10 for adults. Here's a statistic from the CDC. Their most recent one is 2021. 12.3 million People, adults, so nothing, not saying it doesn't affect kids, I already mentioned that, but adults is what this stat is, seriously thought about suicide in 2021. 3.5 million made a plan for suicide, 1.7 made an attempt. That's hopeless. The better it's all over than to keep going with this. I'm not a math guy and had to estimate some numbers, but on our campus today we'll have approximately 1,000 people, six to 700 adults. This is an adult stat, and I thought, when I'm looking out at the audience, how many of the people in the audience will have had, in the last 12 months, a serious, based on this stat, seriously thought about suicide? The number's about 30. 
You look around the room, your eyes will hit someone statistically. I hope it's not true. I hope it's not true online in this room. I hope it's not true, but statistically, it'd be true, 30 people. And then 3.5 million have a plant. That would be about 10 to 12 in this room of a plan. An attempt, about five or six. Let me say two things to you. One, you're not alone. None of those numbers was one. Two, don't. Don't do it. You still have breath. God still has a plan. The future can be better. If you're in an urgent crisis, there's a number right here. And you can con connect with one of our pastors. QR code in the seat right in front of you. Confidentially talk about anything you want to talk about. And you can have a better hope. That eternal hope. That's what happened for Dion. Let me read you what he says next and how. He says, on that fateful day in 1997, I swerved off the road, slammed my foot down on the accelerator. The car just shot up like a rocket. By all rights, it should have flipped or turned over or nosedived, but that didn't happen. When I hit bottom, the car started sliding awkwardly, rocking back and forth until I came down hard. And he goes on to talk about how he didn't have a scratch on him and neither did the car. Fell a significant distance. He credited God with that, and then God began to bring former teammates, lawyers, not teachers of the law, agents, pastors that had a different kind of hope. And he said, late one night, I opened the Bible to a passage that said, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you, that's a promise, will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confesses is made unto salvation. He says, the words hit me like a ton of bricks. I knew they were meant for me. At that moment, I put my trust in Jesus and asked him into my life. Before I found Christ, I had all the material comforts and all the money, all the fame and popularity, but no peace. When I found Christ, I found what I had been missing. You can have that too. Many scholars believe the reason why, isn't it interesting, that the king of the Jews is born and the only people they go looking for him are pagan wizards is because Jesus is for all people. That hope can be yours. If you believe in your heart, that's faith, that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, Confess with your mouth that he rules and reigns is what Lord means. Then the kingdom of God becomes part of your already true. You won't fully yet realize it. It's not fixing every detail of everything around you, but it'll save your soul and gives you a future hope. You might still die of cancer. You'll be healed one day. Your spouse may still leave, but God will never leave you or forsake you. He keeps every promise. It's not made up. It's not, don't worry, tomorrow's going to be better. I don't know about immediately tomorrow. Like Martin Luther King said, oh, we will lose finite moments, but not infinite hope. Hope is like a star. Do you have that hope? And then there's a bunch of us here that would say yes, but it doesn't move us to take risks, to have an adventure. I would challenge you to read verses 4 and 5. And look at the religious leaders, the teachers of the law, who know the truth of the Bible, but lack passion for God. That is a dangerous place to be. And some Bible scholars think the reason why their names aren't given and they're referred to the way they are. Teachers of the law, the chief priest, who is it that kills Jesus? And Matthew chapter 26, go read it. It's the successors of these guys that Matthew might be communicating. There's a thin line between apathy and outright rejection. If you're walking that thin line on thin ice, to refer back to the earlier illustration, grab the anchor. Come back home. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning. Some of us need hope. We know that your son Jesus is hope. Matthew 12, 21 says that the Gentiles hoped in his name. 
Sometimes I get scared when I read the New Testament. Let me just talk candidly to you as your pastor and that I identify more with some of the religious people in the Bible than I do with the outsiders because I've been a Christian for so long. Some of you have been around church and you're church people and you can drift away from Jesus but stay connected to culture of Christianity, the American version at least. And I get scared of, have I done to Jesus what other people in the Bible did to Jesus where they wanted him to be a certain way and so they just took the stuff that they liked, the political deliverance, the financial deliverance. They left the stuff they didn't understand or weren't as comfortable with and this might be the very thing he's asking us to step into that requires risk, that would lead to an adventure. How is it that these pagan wizards are the only ones that actually experience the plan that God has for them and then there's a Jewish king Teachers of the law, that no, experts in the, it's possible to love the truth about God and lack a passion for God. Don't ever let us be those people, Lord. I'd rather be the prostitute kissing your feet, religious leader saying, you don't measure up to my standards. Please don't ever let me be a religious leader that wouldn't at least walk five miles from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, even if I didn't believe that Jesus was there, just to at least be able to teach the people. No, here's why I don't believe. They didn't even go. Don't ever let us be those people. Put a fire in our hearts. If you don't have that kind of hope at all, maybe as we've been talking, and maybe you go to church, or maybe you don't, maybe you're watching online, maybe you're in this room, and I don't know what you wrote on that card. Maybe it's the thing that's pressing you to even contemplate ending it all. Would you place your hope in Jesus? Would you let him be your hope? You can experience him today, but not completely. There's too much to know. You can experience him as your Savior, and then he will keep saving. He says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest for your soul. Anybody here need soul rest? He is your refuge. Those who fled to him, Hebrews, he's our anchor to living hope that does not disappoint, that will overflow and leads to joy. You want that joy? Joy to the world, we sing. Well, a lot of people that are singing it are miserable. Mm. Give us joy even if you don't change our circumstances. An eternal hope. If you don't have that, you can have that today. If you want to talk to a pastor, QR code in front of your seat. They're around this room as well. Pastor Mitchell will be up here. I'm here. Pastor Bryce is on the stage. We'll be off to the sides on the wall in the lobby. Or just somebody sitting by you. You can just turn to him and say, do you have that kind of hope? He was talking about, is that real? Is that a fantasy? The Jesus TED Talk? Nobody really experiences that. Let's see where the Lord leads that conversation. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to sermons from Southbridge Fellowship in Raleigh, North Carolina. If you have a question about the message you just heard, email us at info at sfchurch.com. For additional resources or service information, visit us at sfchurch.com.